from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 16th. Today, a moment of reckoning for the governor of New York, the billionaires thriving in the pandemic, and the optics of a chain-link fence. My name is Josh Dossi. I am a political investigations reporter at The Washington Post. I cover New York politics from 2014 to 2016 uh, for The Wall Street Journal. So the allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo come from a range of women, some current and former employees, some other women that he has encountered. They go from inappropriate touching in some places uh, to sexually suggestive comments to workplace toxic culture that left them feeling quite uncomfortable at, at many times with how he treated them. We've now heard from six or seven different women who have who have given their stories of their experiences with Governor Andrew Cuomo. He has denied most of them while saying that he uh, apologizes if anyone ever felt uncomfortable, but he did not mean anything inappropriate in his actions. And now we have two different investigations that are probing his actions, one by the Attorney General of New York and then one an impeachment investigation by uh, the House in New York State in Albany. And, you know, when we're talking about allegations like these, I think it's so important to be clear and detailed about what these allegations are. So, Josh, can you lay out some of these episodes that people are describing of moments when Governor Cuomo either allegedly was sexually suggestive or made people uncomfortable or even touched people inappropriately? Well, you have... Charlotte Bennett, who was a long time or a fairly long time young aide. He is a textbook abuser. She talked about this on CBS. He lets his temper and his anger rule the office. He said the governor uh, asked her if she was interested in having sex uh, with older men and made a number of other comments to her as she briefed him that she felt that he was trying to potentially take advantage of her uh, sexually or made comments that were not appropriate for the workplace. We have Anna Rush, who says she met the governor at a wedding in 2019 in Manhattan. She had never met him before, and she says that he touched the lower exposed part of her back and brought her face in and gave her uh, a kiss on the cheek. She has it all uh, captured on photos that she shared uh, with the New York Times and on Instagram. You have an identified woman who is now part of an Albany uh, police investigation who says the governor uh, groped her underneath her blouse uh, in the executive mansion. And you have uh, a number of other women who say that the governor asked in their minds inappropriate questions about their dating life, their boyfriends, were they single, would they like to date someone? And so you have a, a range of folks where the allegations go from you know, groping and inappropriate physical contact to a lot of the allegations include repeated personal comments, repeated verbal harassment that they felt uh, was inappropriate. And these allegations, I think, are coming at a notable time in Governor Cuomo's career, considering that his response to the coronavirus crisis to many people has been 
really positive um, that they have sort of hailed him as one of the governors who has taken this problem most seriously and potentially taken action to save lives. So how is that image of him squaring with these allegations against him now? Well, in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, in some ways, Governor Cuomo was seen as an antidote to former President Trump. He was giving these sober-minded, somber briefings that were, let's say, directly different than former President Trump's coronavirus briefings, where you know, he frequently downplayed the virus, and and Cuomo frequently uh, spoke of it as you know a real and severe threat. But there were always some questions about how he was handling the the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, if you look at some of the best local reporting in New York during that time, there were questions about. Uh, his handling of nursing homes and why so many people died in New York nursing homes, whether the governor and his team actually shut down the state when they should have or whether they were way too delayed in shutting down the state. What happened in the early days with the battles between New York Mayor Bill de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo, who are staunch rivals, and whether that paralyzed some of the state's response. So the governor deserved a lot of credit in the minds of his allies for you know, mobilizing hospital beds and ventilators and, and helping, you know, keep New York as afloat as best he could and providing strong public communication. Uh, that's a keystone to a public health crisis. But there were always lots of questions about his decisions that, that lingered, even as he took the forefront of uh, kind of the national leadership and the absence of it from the White House. And how do you think all of that is affecting the way that Cuomo's fellow Democrats are approaching how to respond to this? Because we have seen two pretty stark camps of people who are defending him and people who are calling for his resignation, even before the results of this investigation are made public. Well, one of the aspects that Governor Cuomo has going for him is that he remains fairly popular in New York. There was a Siena College poll done just this week that showed 50% of New Yorkers do not want him to resign, while 35% do, and the others, you know, were undecided. That 61% uh, of Democrats in New York, it's a heavily Democratic state, do not want him to resign. Uh, that 69% of black voters in New York, uh, it's a key constituency for the governor, particularly in New York City, do not want him to resign. So he built a groundswell of goodwill uh, during the pandemic. And he's been a three-term governor. So in some ways, he's a non-commodity in New York. You have one of the most prominent things that's happening here is that Joe Biden, the president, has not called for him to resign. You have Chuck Schumer, who said he, sh he should resign. You have Kristen Gillibrand. You have most of the New York congressional delegation. You have New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. You have Democrats of all stripes who are calling for his resignation. But Biden has not followed that so far. And what Governor Cuomo is counting on is uh, maintaining support among New Yorkers, even if not among New York politicians, and keeping Biden from calling for his resignation. And those are those are two things that are really key to his political survival here. So you said that beyond the the allegations of the governor making sexually suggestive comments, that there has also been a lot of talk about a toxic environment within the governor's office and the way that the governor's office has interacted with, with other people over the years. And I'm wondering, as a person who formally covered New York, what is your sense of that larger concern about this toxic environment or that, that Governor Cuomo created a toxic environment? 
Well, Governor Cuomo has ruled the state with a with a culture of fear for many years. And what's happening now is that when you're in trouble, uh, fear does not bring you allies. What he has been known to do is scream at staffers and berate other lawmakers and to make threats explicit and implicit across the state. And he really has few friends uh, or a few former staffers who you know, truly uh, have a deep abiding uh, love for him because he has just governed so ruthlessly for so long. And what you're seeing here is some of the chickens come home to roost for the governor uh, because he's he's just been known by so many people to be uh, so difficult to work with for so many years uh, that there are few people who are jumping uh, to his defense now. Josh Dossie reports on politics for The Post. And the story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. You know, we've seen a lot about how billionaires have profited and benefited during the pandemic, but we were really curious which billionaires and which industries they were coming from. My name is Natasha Tico. I'm a tech culture reporter. We started to look at the data to try to see whose fortunes, whose net worth had gained the most by dollar amount over the past year. And we're a little bit surprised to see that the top nine people who had gained the most all by net worth were all tech titans. And you know some extremely familiar names, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, the co-founders of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates. And what we found was that nine men made a combined $360 billion last year during the pandemic when so many people were struggling. This number of $360 billion, it's just so shockingly large and hard to even wrap your head around. But at the same time, I wonder if it is really all that surprising that the people at the head of these tech companies did so well when so much of how we got through the last year was because of technology and people really leaning into technology for the things that they needed. Certainly. And I think that it follows the stock market trends that we've already seen, you know, since about 2014, tech has been knocking off industries from the top of the stock market where we would once see companies like Johnson & Johnson, General Electric, Walmart. You know, we now see Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, obviously, Netflix. And those are all companies that we relied on during the pandemic to, you know, if you could afford it, to provide connectivity, to provide entertainment, amusement to make working at home and living at home, socializing from home feasible. So in some ways, it was just a continuation of existing trends. But it also reflected, you know, some of the concerns that we've heard about dominant tech companies and the way that they can use their network effects to continue to grow. What were some of the ways you saw these billionaires expanding their wealth beyond just, you know, what they say, which is providing a service that people want and providing it well? 
So in Amazon's case, around the globe, they hired about 500,000 new workers last year, and that's 400,000 just within the U.S. You know, we saw when there were uh, layoffs happening in other sectors like retail or other parts of the service industry, restaurants, Amazon was hiring up in its warehouses. I mean, they were even luring people from gig companies like Uber and Lyft who were struggling to, you know, make ends meet when the need for ride hailing dwindled. And Amazon has uh, really benefited from this trend more so than most. And, and I think Amazon will tell that story themselves, right? That when all these people were laid off, that they were the ones who were giving them jobs, helping them stay employed, helping them keep their homes. But, but is there a, a downside to that? Or were there actions taken by Amazon that were not so flattering? And also it is worth pointing out, obviously, that Jeff Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon, also owns the Washington Post. Yes. You know, I think that Amazon is a great example to see where that $360 billion number starts to maybe impact the American concept of this like benevolent billionaire or the Silicon Valley concept, which the industry has been really kind of proselytizing for a decade that like their growth in and of itself is a social good. So normally, especially during a time of, um, you know, high unemployment, being a job creator would be looked at as a good in and of itself. But instead, uh, you know, what we've heard a lot about is Amazon workers struggle early in the pandemic to get the kind of protections that they needed to keep themselves safe. And, you know, instead of a moment of, you know, some of these tech titans being heralded as job creators, what we've seen over the past year is a labor movement, you know, rise up from Amazon workers who want to talk about how hard they work and their need for better pay and uh, better protections. And I could understand if they feel like, well, this company and the person at the head of this company have grown their wealth enormously and wanting to see more of that wealth invested back into these workers and into the protections for them, both COVID protections, but also economic protections and making sure that they are also on a path toward greater wealth. Certainly. And this is a stat actually from Oxfam um, that he could pay every Amazon worker $105,000 and still have the same amount of wealth he started with at the beginning of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, that that's why the wealth creation that we've seen concentrated in the hands of so few people over the past year has raised questions about taxation, inequality, wealth distribution, and whether the current system that we have is working for everyone, which Obviously, it's not. And then tell me about a couple of these other billionaires in in terms of how they've done over the past year, like maybe Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. So Elon Musk has had the biggest growth of all of the billionaires. He was at the very top of our list. And I should say at the at the start of 2020, he wasn't even in, you know, the the top 50 richest billionaires. But he saw his net worth rise one hundred and eighteen billion dollars last year. Wow. He and Jeff Bezos were jockeying for that top spot of um, richest person in the world. And Mark Zuckerberg, he saw his net worth rise $29 billion. And, you know, in both cases, it had to do with their share of stock. So in Elon Musk's case, that's Tesla, the electric car company. In Mark Zuckerberg's case, that's obviously Facebook. And, you know, watching those numbers rise also kind of led to 
a more mainstream discussion about how the stock market is really divorced from the rest of the economy. You kind of saw over the mm-hmm. past year, it went from like, hey, everyone, like, let's not forget, it doesn't exactly reflect the rest of the economy when we saw like the unemployment numbers rise while the stock market is hitting record highs. And then um, it kind of evolved into like, wait, the stock market is completely unhinged from reality. And, you know, it's just kind of this gambling game that is not affecting the lives of most Americans. And that's, you know, partly because like the folks who own stocks tend to be from the upper echelon, the wealthiest Americans. But, you know, it's also Mm -hmm. because uh, it's reflecting the growth of these companies. It was really the tech stocks that were holding up indexes like the S&P 500. In particular, uh, in 2020, these six tech stocks, um, Amazon, Apple, Google, Uh, Facebook, Netflix, the usual suspects, they were responsible for 60% of the growth. So some of Mm. those numbers that, you know, we heard President Trump talk about that recovery and how America was booming, that's really only reflecting wealth creation in the hands of very few people. And in the case of Musk and Zuckerberg, did they use the wealth that they created over the past year responsibly or in a way that people are saying has helped others, has helped deal with the problems of the pandemic? Well, I think that those are two great examples of the way that Silicon Valley has talked about how the growth of their companies are in and of itself a social good. So, you know, a lot of people would argue that a growth in Tesla stock, a rise in the profile and interest in electric vehicles as opposed to, you know, gas guzzling cars is a huge benefit for humanity. And Mark Zuckerberg has certainly positioned connecting people on the internet as a social good in and of itself. And this is where, you know, some of the the like dollar amounts that we're seeing of their personal wealth grow is really kind of leading to questions about whether it's fair to say that this is in and of itself a social good, like who is benefiting. And none of these folks, none of these men are under any legal obligation, certainly to give back their wealth, right? Like it's a choice whether or not they want to donate their proceeds. Um, In Mark Zuckerberg's case, he's made huge pledges to give away most of his wealth. But when we looked at like how much they're donating to pandemic related causes in particular, it was surprising to see, you know, the relative gains versus the relative donations. And in Mark Hmm. Zuckerberg's case, I was particularly curious because when he started his major philanthropic efforts, which are actually not organized by a foundation, it's called the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and it's an LLC. But one of his missions was to, quote, cure all disease. Hmm. And, um, you know, he was your opportunity. I know exactly. This is this is what I'm saying. Like in 2020, um, you know, I've covered tech philanthropy and the slogans that you hear from, you know, Silicon Valley saviors is connect the next billion, reduce inequality. That's the Gaste Foundation and and cure all disease. And if there was ever a year to do it, it was 2020. Right. So that's what I was trying to look at, comparing the numbers of how much money they gave straight to the pandemic versus how much they made. And in Zuckerberg's case, he donated one hundred and four million dollars directly to pandemic related efforts. And that's building on money he has already given out to try to uh, modernize and make more efficient the research process for curing disease 
fees. In Musk's case, he gave a reported $5 million to COVID-19 related research. And he also gave a, uh, he donated a bunch of ventilators to hospitals, which, you know, we later found out were actually built to help people with sleep apnea. So they weren't exactly the ventilator some of the hospitals were hoping for. You know, so that's their philanthropic efforts, which we've been trained to look at. But if we look at their personal efforts, um, you know, Elon Musk was also pushing for Tesla to reopen its factories against state orders at the time. He has mm. said some shared some information on his Twitter account about COVID-19 that has been misleading. Um, you know, he talked about how children couldn't get it. He certainly influenced some of his followers to be skeptical of some of the narratives coming out of the medical industry. I mean, even now this weekend, he was talking about COVID relief efforts. And if we look at Mark Zuckerberg, he was doing these live streams with Dr. Fauci and taking a more active role in vaccine misinformation on the platform. However, that follows years of inaction on vaccine information, in particular on Facebook. So, you know, mm. we're looking at like on the one hand, coming up with solutions to try to address these problems, but on the other hand, maybe being a, a perpetuator of some of the inequities that we saw and some of the inaction that we saw that made the pandemic worse. Natasha Tiku writes about tech culture for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. And now, one more thing about a controversial element around the Capitol building in D.C., Audio producer Ariel Plotnick talked to The Post's art and architecture critic, Phil Kennicott. So after the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, the first response was to, as they say, harden the security. So they put up enormous fences with razor wire quite a distance away from the Capitol. So enclosing the Capitol grounds and blocking off a lot of the city streets around the Capitol. It's effectively a green zone. It's a fortified core in the center of what is meant to be, symbolically and geographically and in terms of its urban design, an open and fluid city. So if you came to D.C. right now to visit the Capitol, what would you see? So if you came to D.C., you could get close to the Capitol and you could see it in the distance. But you're going to see it through a scrim of fencing, topped by razor wire. And it isn't actually all that easy to see through. It's not a transparent fencing. It is very provisional. It was a rapid response to an urgent crisis meant to very quickly get people away from the Capitol and to create fortified points of entry so they could screen the people coming in. 
And there are military vehicles still parked at angles across the streets, and soldiers and police are still patrolling it. It's an enormous no-go zone right in the center of the capital, and it feels very much like an alien imposition. What was it like before the fencing went up? You know, when I first moved to Washington, which was more than 20 years ago, I used to walk my dog down East Capitol Street onto the grounds of the Capitol. It was all open then. Now, over the years, various terrorist incidents, especially the attacks of uh, September 2001, have led to more security measures. But until January 6th, it was still very, very open. You could walk really right up to the steps of the Capitol. And that, I think, is really important to the actual meaning of the building, that proximity. Why? If you look at the other iconic buildings of governance in Washington, the Supreme Court is basically an ivory tower, right? It's where a very sort of scholarly discourse about the law happens. And it isn't easy to get into it. And the number of people that can watch a deliberation of the court is, is quite small. But the Capitol is where the actual argument happened. It's where the fundamental powers of the country are invested. And so the striking thing about the Capitol is that you can just walk right up to it. And every time I do that, even now after having lived here for more than 20 years, when I get there, I have this little voice in my head that says, you shouldn't be able to get this close to this important building. And then the next voice says, but that's why you live in a democracy, because you can, because you can get up and literally be in the midst of the operations of your government. You know, it's not as if the original architects over the years forgot to add a fence and now we somehow have to rectify their mistake. The lack of that fence is absolutely fundamental to the meaning and the purpose and the symbolism of the building. In your critique of the fencing, you mentioned that putting it up in the first place was maybe an incorrect read of what actually happened on January 6th. Can you explain what you mean by that? So whenever there is a failure of security in this country, the first response is to look to the infrastructure. Did we have enough bollards? Were the walls high enough? Have we moved the security perimeter far enough from the building? That's a response that came largely out of events like the bombing of the Oklahoma City building and also the attacks of 2001. And we saw Washington transformed by that sense that the first thing you do, the essential thing you do, is to harden. The problem with the attack on January 6th is that it was a failure of intelligence, not infrastructure. It was a failure to read the message, to know what was happening, to communicate those messages through the security apparatus. We knew what they intended to do. They made it perfectly clear. There was no mystery. They came to overturn the election. They came to attack the Capitol. They came to invade and stop the process of finalizing the electoral votes. So... It is a failure of intelligence, not a failure of bollards or buildings or fences. And to respond to this with bollards and fencing and new security checkpoints is essentially invite an even worse attack in the future. So now it's March. The fencing has been up since January, and it seems unlikely that it's going to come down anytime soon. As we look ahead, what is the impact of this indefinite visual of the fencing around the Capitol. 
I think one of the things a fence does very quickly is suggest the urgency of the authorities that are trying to defend a space. We have responded. We have put this fence up. Now, it's very difficult to take fences down. It's quite easy to put them up. And I worry that as the weeks and months tick by and the fence remains in place, that it will become permanent eventually. Phil Kennicott is an art and architecture critic for The Post. Ariel Plotnick is an audio producer. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 